Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2157 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 25 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. I appreciate everybody being here. I appreciate Putnam Church and the love that we have for one another. And today's lesson is going to be focused on that as we continue our series on good news according to John the Apostle. Last week we saw that Jesus ended his public ministry. So he could focus these final three days on his, with his disciples before his crucifixion. It was a pivotal event in their lives. It was a pivotal event in Christ's life. Jesus' hour, his purpose for coming to earth was nearly here. As we read last week in chapter 12, verse 24, he declared, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. By Christ dying, set in motion the kingdom of God, and we're called to continue. And today we begin our fourth segment of John's narrative, and that is the confirmation of the word in chapters 13 through 17, which I'm not going to cover everything, all that today, but we're going to start in this section in chapter 13. We join Christ behind those closed doors with his disciples. And then he took on the role of the lowliest of all servants as he washed his disciples' feet. And our scripture for today is John 13, verses 1 through 17. And it's on page 1673 in your pew Bible. So follow along as I read the passage for today. Page 1673. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that his hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were within this world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, For those of you who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said that not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. 
Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know those things, you will be blessed if you do them. <clears throat> and I'm always amazed and comforted that the Lord ties passages that John reads, Lucille's prayer for the offering ties in so closely to this passage today. And we see, as John often does, he shares one of those snapshot images of his timeline. In this chapter, it takes place on the final evening before his crucifixion. So he condensed those three days down to this one pivotal evening, the hour that Jesus' passion approached. He took the opportunity to spend that evening with his disciples. We see in John chapter 13 through 17, which we'll cover over the next few weeks, these are the final instructions to his disciples till after his resurrection. He knew that they were to be unprepared for the challenge. It was to be a confusing time that they face. And like most people in that first century Israel, most of the Jews, they expected the Messiah and the disciples did also to claim his throne, rout the enemies, lead Israel into unprecedented power and prosperity, and bring the entire world under his dominion. He had predicted his death, his resurrection. Nevertheless, his arrest, his trial, his torture, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, and even his departure from earth would be a terrible shock to the disciples. It was like a perfect dream that they had of entering into this kingdom with Christ and them serving as his right-hand people. It turned it into a hideous nightmare. And as the evenings passed, Jesus spoke of his life and ministry that his physical presence would soon end. The disciples began to quickly understand the gravity of the moment, and their hearts, as we'll see in subsequent weeks, were troubled. They'd be gripped with that same dread that an orphan would have when he realizes that I'm all alone in this world. They couldn't imagine life without Jesus. Jesus often stated his identity, and he used vivid metaphors throughout his teaching. I don't think there's been a better teacher and what Christ taught through his parables and his teaching, his relationship to humanity. But rarely ever did he spoke of himself. Only once in all the scripture did he actually describe his inner self. And it occurred when he was preaching to a congregation of Jews, and he invited all those who were weary of trying to satisfy their souls through religion to find rest in him. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you. I, let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, this Greek adjective here for the word humble derives from a verb to make low, to make small or insignificant. Humility is expressed by bowing of the head or kneeling or prostrating oneself before the Lord. But isn't it significant here? that Jesus referred to himself as humble and gentle. Humility is the essential power for the believer. It's an essential posture for the believer also. It doesn't mean that we bow our heads in defeat and shame. 
No, our pattern is Jesus Christ. The humble Son of God cannot be defeated. He has no reason for shame. Though he was humble and gentle, he was also omnipotent. He laid aside his divine attributes so he could become one like us. But he can take that omnipotence back up at any moment. Humility is not for those who are down and out. On the contrast, authentic humility is only possible when victorious men and women are confident in a relationship with Jesus Christ that he is their savior. We can be gen gentle and humble and still very confident. As the evening fell upon this upper room, Jesus had many lessons to teach before anything else, though. He wanted to teach them the all-important noble art of bowing low. As we start with verse 1, John opens the narrative section of the summary with this summary statement of Jesus' ministry, that while his hour was at hand, he had loved his own during his entire ministry, and now he loved them to the end. And in Greek, that word is eostelos, literally means to the final goal. He had loved them to completion, to the fullest, all the way to the end. He had completed their training. And during this final evening with his 12, he needed only to review and highlight the important lessons and to reveal their immediate future. John takes great care to note the timing of Jesus' last meal with his disciples and the subsequent ordeal that would take place. Before the end of this section, over the next few weeks, the connection to the Passover lamb and Jesus would be very clear. John chapter 1, verse 29, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world would become evident to them. Verses 2 through 4 is actually one long compound sentence. In the simplest form can be seen if you paste those first few words of each phrase, of each verse together, the evening meal was in progress. Jesus got up from his meal. Now, the supporting clauses within those verses establishes Jesus' timing of this event. His inner thoughts, and we'll understand the full significance of what he does next. Verse 2 reveals that Judas had already determined to betray the Lord, and he reclined at the table along with the other 11 disciples. And according to Luke, he had actually already received the, the money there's 30 pieces of silver, Luke chapter 22, verses 3 through 6, from the priest at the temple. And he was just looking for that excellent opportunity to hand Jesus over to the temple authorities. Verse 3, Jesus reveal, reveals that he knew that he was about to endure great suffering, to die, to rise from the grave, and then to receive glory over all creation. Verse 4 tells us, despite knowing him knowing all this, he slipped away from the table and silently traded his robes for the attire of a slave. But not just any slave, the lowest of lowest slaves, the last one on the, the pecking order, the last one at the bottom, the slave that washed the robe grime from house guests that would show up at your house. When a host family invited someone to dine in their homes in those days, it was customary for them to have the lowest of all servants stand at the door. And each, as each guest came in, they would have a towel that would be wrapped around them. And then they would take the basin 
and the jar of pitcher water. They'd pour some water over the feet, and then they would scrub those feet. They removed the sandals that were covered with grime and dirt, maybe some manure also, and they would wash the feet of the house guests as they would come in. And then they would pour clean water over those feet in order to make sure that the feet were clean so they could proceed on into the house. And this is the example that Jesus has for us today, that he takes our road grime of our daily walk and he cleanses us. John assumed that most readers were familiar with the other three gospel accounts. Remember, John was written 60 years after the other gospel accounts. He assumed that they knew what was going the other stories that the other three apostles told. And we know that from Luke chapter 22, verse 24, the disciples that very evening were quarreling over who would be the best suited for the most prominent positions in the kingdom of God. In the Lord's new government, even on the eve of that crucifixion, they still expected Jesus somehow to topple Rome, to establish his new monarchy, leading to their promotion. That's what they were concerned about. But Jesus came to establish a new kingdom. In the kingdom of God, one receives authority through humble service, like washing of one's feet. If anyone in that room deserved to be treated like a king, it was certainly Jesus. If anyone was worthy of devotion, it was our Lord. Yet he took upon himself to become one of the lowliest of all servants, and Jesus washed the feet of all the disciples, all of them, 12 disciples, including Judas. We move on to verses 6 through 11. Jesus had already washed the feet of several disciples before coming to Peter. And that brash disciple protested, saying, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? The Lord reassured his pupil that the significance of what he was doing was a lesson that they needed to know. And the whole evening, as he teaches these lessons, would become clear with time. But Peter protested, no, said Peter, you'll never wash my feet. Today we might say, never, not in a million years will I let you do that to me. And at first glance, we might think, well, Peter was awful humble, saying, oh, Lord, I should be washing your feet instead. <laughs> but that's not what Peter meant. Instead, it was a self-asserted pride. He refused to accept grace from another person. That kind of vulnerability that he would not allow himself to be in front of others at this point. We see Jesus, or Peter changed after the resurrection. If Peter had dirty feet, he would take care of them himself. No charity needed here, thank you very much. Jesus reminded Peter, that eternity is not to be enjoyed apart from his grace. But Peter, not being a man of moderation in any way, ran to the other extreme and says, Lord, give me a bath. You're going to wash my feet? And that's what that means. He wanted it all. But Jesus rejected his interpretation of this foot washing lesson today because Peter did believe in the Son of God. And he received salvation from sin by grace. He was already clean. You might say, once bathed, always bathed. However, God's grace continues through the lives of his believers, including us, 
because our feet collect the dust of the world on a daily basis. Jesus' prominent themes, or predominant themes, throughout the evening were needed to continue that communion with God. With the help of the Holy Spirit, after Pentecost, it became all clear to them. His love and unity within the body of Christ, those believers, but understanding the danger that the world poses to us. Not that we should be fearful, because we'll cover that in a couple weeks, not to be fearful. But we as believers continually struggle against remaining clean, because as we walk through the world, our feet are collecting dust and dirt. We know that our sins, past, present, and future sins, are forgiven forever, for all of eternity. But we will pick up that road grime as we walk through the, through the world each day. You know what our feet, foot washing is for today? It's going to the Lord daily in prayer, asking for forgiveness for those known and unknown sins that have grimed our feet and allowed us to pick up the dust of the world. Now, John's editorial comments reminds us that Jesus knew what Jesus or Judas was going to do, that he was looking for that opportunity to betray his master. Yet even Judas received that touching act of grace. He had his feet washed along with all the other disciples. In verses 12 through 17, once Jesus finished his opening act of humility, he began to teach them. First, he explained his purpose. Then in classic instructive fashion, as Jesus often does, he posed a carefully crafted question to his students. And I can see the 12 disciples sitting around with Jesus there at the table now, and them giving responses. They're probably, some of them, pretty comical. They probably chuckled among themselves. Maybe Jesus even chuckled at their responses to him. Understanding their minds were still dull, that they would not fully understand until after his resurrection what the meaning of that washing of feet would be. He established two principles, those for humility, and they would become, become foundational in his kingdom. If you'll look at your bulletin insert on the side with that picture of love without limit, I've listed these two kingdom principles. First of all, humility doesn't discriminate. Humility is expressed equally to all. Jesus had love without limit. Jesus didn't ask his students to wash his feet in return, but to wash one another's feet. Let's face it. Most of us probably wouldn't have a problem washing Jesus' feet. But how many of us would be willing to wash each other's feet, especially if a person that we knew to wash their feet had not treated us very kindly, or maybe even betrayed us? Or would we be willing to bow down before them and wash their feet? That's the lesson that Jesus wants. The lesson would be to hit the disciples even harder later on when they recalled, because at this point the disciples didn't know that Judas was going to betray Jesus. They had no clue. But as they thought back after the crucifixion and thought, you know, Jesus washed Judas's feet along with the rest of us. How that must have impacted their lives. Second, the humility turns the structure of authority upside down. If you remember our lessons last year, from the Sermon on the Mount, where I brought in the globe several times, that the world system 
that we have today is upside down. And what Jesus wants us to do as kingdom builders, as citizens of God's kingdom, is to walk in such a way, to serve each other in such a way, that we turn this world right, by, right side up. That we put things back in the proper perspective, not the world's perspective, but the proper perspective according to God's kingdom. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus stated flatly in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Jesus, as a new kingdom, as that king of that new kingdom, reduced himself to the lowest of all humanity, taking on the sin of the world and becoming sin for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be an offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. He not only took on the form of the lowest servant, he took all of our sin on him, that we might be made right with God. Then suffering that most humiliating death ever devised by man through crucifixion, while no other human could possibly match Jesus' humility, we have been summoned to be like our master. Jesus Christ is that perfect imager of God. He's in the image of God. He's a perfect imager of him. We are also imagers of God, and we are to image Jesus Christ. We are to take upon him, us, his attributes. Because we do not come, become great in the new kingdom by having to suffer through crucifixion like Jesus did. There's no need for any additional sacrificial death because those demands were fully completed and satisfied in Christ. Instead, we become great in the new kingdom by bowing low and serving others. And I have to admit, I find the idea of foot washing, either literally or figuratively, as Jesus' lessons teach us here, much easier to teach than to practice. But Jesus didn't promise us to release his blessings upon those who think about foot washing or teach about foot washing, but those who actually serve one another in love. The people I remember who are genuinely humble aren't the ones that go out and announce it. In fact, they don't consider themselves anything special at all. They just serve out of love, not bringing any attention to themselves. The blessings they receive are received when they serve others. And it should be enough contentment for any of us. Jesus taught humility through example. He personified humility. I think we need to resolve as believers to learn humility as he's taught it. Now Putnam, and we've been in not a lot of churches, but a few churches over the course of our lives. And the love and the passion, the compassion and service of others here at Putnam is stronger than I've seen in almost every other church, probably every other church. But let us not stop. Let us not grow weary on doing good. The application for today is cultivating that noble art of bowing low. In John 13, 1 through 17, Jesus laid aside his outer garment dressed himself like a slave. He actually became like a slave and bowed down low to wash his disciples' feet. He taught the disciples several important lessons when he did this. Lessons about humility. And the first of which is humility is an action, not simply an attitude that we have. 
We don't say, well, I'm humble. We don't do anything about it. It's not really being humble. One does not feel humble or think humble thoughts. Genuine humility is no thought of self at all. Humility is behavior in its purest form. It involves very little emotion other than the emotion of affection and compassion for other people. With this in mind, if you look in your bulletin insert on the other side, cultivating the noble art of bowing low, I have six principles from Jesus' lesson today on humility. The first one is humility is unannounced. Jesus didn't rise from the table and boldly announce, now I am going to show you what humility is all about. That wouldn't show humility at all. He simply began washing their feet. And once someone calls their attention to their deeds of service, then pride creeps in and contaminates that service. Therefore, we don't need to announce humble acts of service before or after they're done. If it needs to be recognized, it'll be recognized without us announcing it. Now, Jesus only came back after this lesson to, to teach his disciples what he was trying to teach them. Second, humility is being willing to receive service without embarrassment. We may say, well, I don't have any problem serving others, but like Peter, do we like other people serving us? We usually feel embarrassed by deeds and services of kindness that others show on us because we perceive that the normal rules of status and rank are being breached. We don't like to say we need somebody else. In Peter's mind, the lesser should serve the greater. Jesus inverted this world from upside down and says, if you really want to serve me, you'll do opposite of what the world teaches. We'll turn this kingdom right side up. That's what Jesus is teaching in this lesson today. The greatest in the kingdom of God serves and receives services with no thought of status, worth, or rank. You have to be willing to receive as well as provide service to others. Third, humility is not a sign of weakness. Jesus did not serve his disciples because he was weak, needed their goodwill, desired their approval, or coveted their loyalty in any manner. On the contrary, Jesus, none other than the almighty Son of God, bowed low to serve the people that he loved. He washed 24 feet of those disciples that were dirty and needed washing. This practical task also served as an ideal teaching opportunity for the Lord and his disciples. We need to look for opportunities to not only provide service, but also to teach others. Just through everyday life, it doesn't have to be something special. Fourth, humility does not discriminate. Jesus washed the feet of every disciple in the room, including the feet of Judas. The man that he knew already had made plans and was going to betray him that very night. Jesus didn't line up the disciples in rank or order of closeness or loyalty or any other standard. He didn't wait for the traitor among them to depart to do his evil deed. He washed the feet of all the disciples, including Jesus. He washed the feet that needed washing without prejudice or favoritism. I saw a quote online within the last couple of weeks that made me stop to think. If you say you love Jesus, then you must also love Judas. How many of us say, yeah, I love Jesus, 
We sing about them. We talk about them. But how many of us are willing to love people that betray us, the people that bring us harm into our lives? Are we still willing to love them and to serve them, to wash their feet, to bow down low to those that mistreat us as Jesus did? Fifth, humility includes serving one another, not just the Lord, because serving one another is the same as serving the Lord. Serving the Lord is the greatest delight that we'll have in this world, but helping one another in our minds sometimes doesn't seem quite as rewarding. But it's impossible to separate those two. We may think that the Lord is worthy of service and easy to love, while our fellow believers or those who are outside the family of God are not so easy to love, not so easy to serve, because maybe they fail to express their gratitude to us. <clears throat> if we're waiting for gratitude to come back, then we need to check and see what reason are we serving them for? Because Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40 said, and the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it for the one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. So as we serve each other, we're serving Christ at the same time. And the last one, sixth, the joy of humility can only be ex experienced through humility in action. Humility comes from doing, not merely reading about it, hearing others talk about it, seeing others practice it. Jesus demonstrated humility then. He urged the disciples to follow his example. Humility is serving and being served without regard of rank or status. Service will be our ministry, our mutual experience in heaven, serving one another. So it is up to us to start it now. God has encouraged us to create a little bit of heaven here on earth. If you remember John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, this is part of your rich and satisfying life. And part of that is serving one another. We're supposed to be living that every day. We as citizens of God's kingdom, our vocation is to build God's kingdom until Christ comes a second time and restores the global Eden where heaven and earth will combine and we serve him throughout all eternity. But until then, whether it's this year, whether it's 10,000 years from now, we're to build his kingdom. That's what we're doing here on earth today. And we do that by serving one another. Let us continue the good work that we've begun here and continue to serve each other. And next Sunday, we'll see the story of Judas betrays Jesus. But Jesus teaches us through that, that true acceptance consists of accepting those that we may not agree with, accepting those who are living lifestyles that we might not agree with, not approving necessarily what they do, but accepting them as individuals to love them as we should. The message title for next week is How High is Your AQ? Your Acceptance Quotient. So I'd ask you to please read John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30 in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for this example that you've set to us, that you are willing through your son to stoop to the lowest of all servants to wash the disciples' feet as an example on how we should bow and assist others 
to help others, to serve others, Father. Let us never neglect, especially among the believers, those citizens of God's kingdom. And once we've served them, let us step out and serve those that need to be told of Jesus Christ so they can be welcomed into the kingdom also, Father. We thank you for your love, your mercy, your goodness. Thank you for this lesson. Help us to understand that if we're to love Jesus Christ properly, then we must also love Judas. Help us to ingrain this in our mind that we might serve you more faithfully, Father, out of a heart of pure love. Pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously. Lead with integrity and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.